This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The Denver teachers' strike focused partly on teachers' complaints about incentive pay. What do our teachers think they should get bonuses for? Plus, has our current era of high-stakes standardized testing run its course? And if so, what should replace it? Those topics and kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners, before we kick off this next episode, I just wanted to let you know we will be taking a break from new episodes for at least the next two weeks. Don't worry, everything's fine. My wife and I are expecting our second baby, and her due date is quickly approaching, so I wanted to make sure that I was there and present for that. So we hope to be back with new episodes of No Wrong Answers with new timely topics about teaching by mid-March. Check back here or wherever you listen to us for future updates. Until then, as always, be nice to your teachers. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk, so let's introduce them. Elaine Jarden, you used to be in the classroom. Now what do you do in education? I'm a school counselor in training. Rebecca McIntosh, welcome back. What do you teach? I teach elementary students at an alternative school. And David Persley, I think for the first time in 2019. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. David, welcome back. What do you teach? I teach high school math and computer science. So Elaine, Rebecca, and David, all three of them are educators in the Kansas City metro area, which has been getting a lot of snow days over the last couple of months. A lot of days. <laughs> so many. And we are taping this before President's Day, so you have another day off tomorrow. I just want to go to school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Friday Cheat Sheet, at nowronganswerspodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and gives you a chance as well to um, check out some interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world in your inbox. Sign up for The Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. A three-day teacher strike in Denver ended recently after the district and union representatives reached a tentative agreement that adds roughly $23 million to teacher compensation. According to the Washington Post, that will raise teachers' base pay by an average of 12%. The strike in Denver was just the latest in a string of teacher labor actions dating back to last spring, but it did offer a new wrinkle of sorts because of how teacher grievances there focused on incentive pay. Denver has one of the oldest incentive pay schemes of any big city school district in the country. Teachers there under the system known as ProComp can earn up to nearly $6,000 in annual bonuses for things like teaching in hard-to-staff schools, teaching high-demand subjects like math and science, and also for working in top-performing schools, though yearly bonuses varied from year to year, and that was part of the problem, according to teachers. Many Denver teachers have criticized ProComp for being arbitrary, overly complicated, and unpredictable. One of striking teachers' key demands was that the district reestablish a more traditional salary schedule, decrease the money going to incentive bonuses, and put more money into base salaries, and all that appears to have happened with this tentative deal. We'll get into the broader theory of incentive pay, also called merit pay by some, and the research on whether it works or not to raise student achievement. But let me get to our teachers' thoughts specifically on the Denver system 
system. None of you teach in Denver, obviously, but just kind of based on what you've read about and what you've heard, does it strike you as fair or unfair? Do the teachers' complaints about it being opaque and arbitrary and unpredictable, do those resonate with you? Yay, Denver. I was so proud of them. <laughs> this is our teacher I've got to our, do, our I've teacher got to, union representative, by I the way. Be, <laughs> I have to be a union thug for just a minute. Um, <laughs> they didn't want to strike. They've been at the bargaining table. They've been there for 15 months. It was a terrible, terrible system. I'm just so proud of them for standing up and getting everybody back to the Why table. Why was it a terrible system in your, in your estimation? Colorado ranks, I believe, 46th in the nation for teacher pay. They, their base pay is shamefully low. And we know that because we're down there at the bottom with them here in Missouri. So we know who our neighbors on that list are. Their base pay is not enough for a livable wage for a teacher in a classroom. So you had teachers working multiple jobs to, to survive. Um, Colorado is also strong. They struggle under their so-called taxpayer bill of rights. They have Tabor to cope with and their pension system is in terrible shape. So the teachers had several things working against them mm-hmm. over a year and a half that finally came to a head. And I was just so proud of them. For and, 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 a, and a bonus pay system does not make up for that. Does yeah, it? absolutely. A I bonus, was gonna... the, the arbitrary nature of just awarding bonuses that are different from year to year and quite frankly went to more administrators than teachers is not something you can budget on and have a life. Yeah, David? My feelings around incentive pay or merit pay have evolved, and I think I'm more open to the idea of it than I once was, but it has to be done very judiciously, and it can't be a way to attempt to compensate for low wages. Like, that's not going to solve the problem. I always object to the idea that somehow there's a bucket of skill and talent that teachers are holding back. Yeah. That somehow if you waive an, an additional incentive at us, that we're going to all of a sudden be better. Teachers go in and give 100% all the time. This it's is not that we're holding back. This is an unpopular, the right, the right this is unpopular opinion, but I've also feel like over the years, my opinion on that also evolved some to I don't think there's anybody in the, who's not in the classroom who has the best intention of students, but like between burnout. And between maybe not feeling supported and having what you need, it's not necessarily that they're not giving 100%, but they're not putting quite the same level of effort forth as they used to because they feel like it's not getting them any farther along. There's a nuance to that perspective, which, like, shouldn't paint a negative light upon teachers, but I think is a reflection of sometimes, like, not feeling, like, compensated. I mean, I've definitely, you know, I've only been in the classroom five years, but at times I feel burnt out and I'm like, I... I don't know if I'm cut out for doing this the rest of my life. And I wonder sometimes if that affects my, my performance and output. And I have to, like, really reflect and remind myself as to why I'm there. But I feel like I see other folks who may not be able to get themselves back into it. Um, I'm lucky to have, like, a really great staff around me, and that culture helps. But, like, if you don't have that going for you, then, you know, it's not necessarily that you're a bad teacher or that you're not having the best interests of students at heart, but you're just not being compelled be putting your best and you're saying that you're saying a performance incentive might entice you to, yeah to it, i think to, it could go help over the that. line yeah. yeah yeah definitely have any of you ever worked in a system that offers merit pay or some sort of like performance bonus or incentive <clears throat> well no we all basically do in the districts we work in here in the kansas city metro because our districts do have extra compensation available if you coach mm-hmm. or if you have national teacher mm-hmm. certification or if you have a higher degree or your EDS. So we really do have... Do you consider that kind of bonus finan- pay? Kind of professional yeah. development bonuses available to us. Yeah. 
Um, all our districts have a system where if you do additional duties, you get additional compensation, um, coaching or sponsorship, things like that. So all of that does fall under that kind of, I'm going to make air quotes, career ladder yeah. kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um but not in the way that a, a bonus kind of system works based on a random arbitrary measurement yeah. of so-called student so there performance. So there were different parts to the Denver system, right? So you did, get, you did get a bonus if you worked in one of the top 10 performing schools in the district. So that was kind of a, a bonus linked to student achievement or student test scores. You also got a bonus for working in a hard-to-staff school um, or in a, in a STEM subject, you know, theoretically hard, you know, a, a, a high-need subject. So... Are, in your mind, is there is there a difference between bonuses like that? And there are also bonuses for the types of stuff you're talking about, Rebecca. Where if you got if you furthered yourself in your own education, if you got a higher degree, you got. I mean, and that and that could fall into a typical salary schedule too. But do, I mean, as teachers, do you put a difference between those types of bonuses? One based on student achievement, which can get kind of dicey, or one based on like where you're actually working. If you're going to a high need school, do you feel like you should be compensated more for that? I, th- I have no problem with that differentiated kind of instruction, especially when you're trying to staff an, an at-risk school population or you need a high area of specialization in the sciences or the foreign languages, um, arts and STEM. I have no problem with that differentiated compensation if it's reached collaboratively mm-hmm. and if it's based on standards that are actually measuring what they're intended to measure. So I don't think you can look at random student test scores and call that achievement and then start handing out money to teachers who didn't get to choose that group of students in their classroom. And and oftentimes the so-called merit pay is based on what somebody thought was student achievement that doesn't actually reflect student achievement. Yeah. I also feel like when you're talking about hard to fill schools and it sounds like Denver had some incentives for them, but even then, you know, um, thinking of other districts that might try to do something similar, I wonder if they're even considering the difference between like absolute metrics versus like growth metrics, right? Because if you're working at a school that is behind the curve and you have an exceptional instructor, instructor, maybe a fourth grade teacher who's getting his kids who are at a first or second grade math or reading level to a third grade math or reading level. Yeah, they're not hitting at that fourth grade bar, but he's still giving his kids more than a year's worth of growth. Where is the incentive for that? So I think like, yeah, to that point, it has to be done very judiciously. You have to be very mindful of like, the unique circumstance each school is within, to your point, like you can't choose your kids, right? They're, they're there and you have to do your best to get them as far along as they can. Uh, Elaine, I wonder, has your has your view on what might be a, a, an effective incentive for teaching changed now that you're out of the classroom and you, you're in more of an administrative role now as a counselor in training? You get to see teachers from the outside, see different teachers um, and how they work, and you see it from a more global uh, the school from a more global perspective. I'd love to see incentives for teachers that are going above and beyond to implement IEP accommodations and modifications, and 504 accommodations, and reading improvement plans. Um, when I look at the things that we're asking classroom teachers to do, and again, you don't pick your kids. In some years, you have a class where you're putting in a lot of extra hours meeting with me to set up 504s. You know, and I do think things like that should be compensated financially too because at least for me like that's where the burnout comes in when it's like things on top of things on top of things and um you know it's not fair necessarily for the teacher who has all ap honors or advanced with none of those additional supports going into place and then the ones that are teaching striving readers striving writers 
I don't know. I'd like to see something that balances that more. So that gets to my next question. I mean, performance incentives can come in many different flavors. Some districts really rely on student achievement data to award bonuses. Um, there are ones like Denver that combine different elements. We've talked about that. Um, other systems offer group bonuses, say for grade level teams or an entire school based on student data. Is there a pay incentive structure that you could imagine that you would like or that you would you would work under? None of you have actually ever been in a system that offers merit pay, but could you imagine one that you would like? I think something could be developed. I mean, these are smart people doing this work. I think you could sit down, but it has to absolutely be done collaboratively so that everybody has to be at that table and it has to be available to absolutely everybody, not just a few hand-picked specialties or this particular building and not that building. So it has to be across the board. I think it has to it has to recognize contributions outside the classroom. Mm -hmm. Teachers who have stepped up to mentor or do professional development or additional education, people who are taking leadership roles have to be recognized and compensated for those duties. Um, I think if all of those elements get pulled together, something equitable could be designed. But the you know, the, the secret is that it has to be funded year after year, mm -hmm. and so often the budget will change right? Yeah. so that a plan gets put in and it's not there the next year, and then you have a different salary conversation the next year, and the, and the plan would go away. So it would have to be long-term, and yeah. there, there would be, have to, to be some serious investment from all the stakeholders to make it work. Yeah. Uh, David, Elaine, any kind of a pay structure, merit pay structure, performance incentive structure that you could imagine appreciating? I don't know, because I think about myself selfishly, and it's like, how would I be measured? Like, we do a lot of work to improve our school's attendance, but I'm one person helping with that. I can't take all that credit. Yeah. Or making sure that, you know, kids feel safe at school. I'm just one part of that equation. And that's, I think, where the merit system gets tricky. And I agree with you, Rebecca, that we need more things that are like you're furthering yourself or taking on these responsibilities, because I think it's too hard to tease out always like, who's responsible for what? I think it would be something that probably would be best negotiated or agreed to before the year begins, right? Mm -hmm. Contingent upon, like, you doing those extra things that you've committed to doing rather than, like, something at the end of the year where, you know, you're looking at data, which, you know, is... I mean, I, I'm a statistician by trade. I could make my data look great if I want it. That doesn't necessarily mean that my students learned a ton. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like it needs to be more about, like, contributions you're making to the school. Um, obviously, like, instruction is important in getting those high outcomes, but I think they should focus more around, like, extracurriculars, leadership, um, going above and beyond in all the other ways because I feel like that instruction and in, in, in bringing that in high-quality students is just the base. Mm -hmm. That's what you're being there to be for. You should be getting paid more to do that off the jump. And those other things are incentives that I think you can talk about before the year begins or at a point in time where you know what that budget is before it's the end of the year and you're trying to, you know, make a case for yourself to just, you know, skim some extra money on top. Uh, well, the research on the effect of incentive pay um, on student achievement, at least, I think like a lot of things in education, is mixed. Frankly, you can find studies to back up either side. Um, of this debate, depending on where you lean. A big national study published last year that included results from more than 100 schools in 10 big city districts found that schools that did give bonuses based on classroom observations and student test scores 
did see bigger gains on student achievement over a four-year period than schools that simply offered 1% across-the-board bonuses to staff. But there are high-profile studies out of New York City and one by Vanderbilt University that have concluded big performance bonuses, in fact, have no measurable effect on student achievement. So um, research may be beside the point. Is is the, conver- the conversation gets really muddy around incentive pay when you start linking it to um, testing data and, and, and student achievement. I think you guys have already kind of hit upon that. Why is that so... Uh, bothersome to teachers? Well, I think it goes back to what David said about are you looking at a, a snapshot in time at a, a, a data point from a test? Or are you looking at a growth mm-hmm. kind of consideration? How, how has this teacher moved this class from A to B? What kind of growth has occurred um, that can be, you know, powerful learning that may not be reflected on yeah. a couple of standardized tests that you're then comparing to non-cohort groups to, I mean, it just, the whole, maybe we should talk about standardized testing <laughs> problems. <laughs> yep. hmm, I, I feel um, like, uh, if, if we could do that looking through my, sometime, looking through my script because here. just yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the shortcomings of using a single data point from a standardized test uh, isn't a good, I think, well, you know, I, of learning that's occurred in the classroom. You know, when I was a teacher, I heard the argument a lot because I, I worked in a district about a decade ago, Houston, that at the time was... Um, would have been around the same time Denver implemented ProComp, w- was implementing its own kind of nascent uh, performance incentive system. And it they changed it from year to year. And, you know, some years people, including myself, got big bonuses. The next year didn't get anything. And so there's like this up and down roller coaster effect. And it also, I think... We heard a lot, you know, people would just kind of get upset because they know what their colleague down the hall had made or the not e- made. And the I, and effect I, and on morale is uh, And I wonder, mm-hmm. and you guys have never worked in a system where there are where there is merit pay, but do you, would you worry about that where it, it, it creates divisions or, or teachers above that? I think that probably happens in schools already. I mean, yeah. we compare ourselves to our colleagues constantly. Mm-hmm. What What's going on in our rooms, what we think we see happening in our colleagues' rooms. I mean, the division caused, I think, by – we don't do a lot of talking about our paycheck at school. But I think knowing that would be a huge under – it would just undermine everything that you're trying to develop cohesively in a building. I, I, I think that would be difficult. We don't get to choose the kids who come to our room. We welcome them all in. And we get who we get, and we do the best work we can with them. Um, and I don't think I'd want to compare to my neighbor. I think one of the things that gets me about <clears throat> standardized testing is, again, just like you were saying, like you are teaching whoever shows up through the door. And so is it fair for a teacher to be held accountable for the score of a student who hasn't been in their class all year? Is it fair for a teacher to be responsible of the score of a student who had something traumatic happen at home the morning before the test? Like, there's just too many variables to control. And I think, at least for me, that's where it feels uncomfortable. It's like if people are being rewarded for national board certification or maybe they have this exceptional performance over time, you know, you're producing more than a year's worth of growth year over year over year. I think then that is... So then we could talk about a rigorous and robust right. teacher evaluation system. Yes, and that I'm fully in support that of. Would that would be makes a sense great to basis to mm-hmm. be able to accurately predict achievement in a teacher's classroom. Yeah. Well, and I think that affects the morale discussion too, because then it's like, oh, so-and-so's you know, above and beyond and producing year after year after year, like maybe there's something I can learn from them as opposed to like, woe is me. I got the bad group this year, you know, and they got the great ones. David, you said your your thoughts on this had changed or evolved over time. I wonder from what to what. I know my experience from you guys is a little bit different being at a, at a public charter, but it's still a charter. So like that 
union like experience like I don't have that same backing so I feel like you know it is like a little more you got to watch your own back and um for myself sometimes I like I'm at a point now where I feel like I know my worth I know how much quality of instruction I'm bringing to my students I, I feel like I'm doing well and I'm obviously getting better but like it's for me sometimes <sighs> frustrating knowing as though I feel like I'm doing more <laughs> than the person next to me and, and knowing they're making more to me because they check certain boxes. Um, and so I have to like check myself and make sure I'm not creating uh, a toxic environment in that regard. And, and I think I'm not, but for me it's knowing like, I feel like in a lot of ways I've put myself in a position to do more than a lot of others in, in, in my building. Like I have four preps I've started the computer science program from the ground up. I've all done these, all these different things and uh, haven't, you know, felt like I've gotten compensation for those things in a way that I should. And so it's frustrating knowing I feel like I'm doing, again, more than others and not feeling like as though the, the pay I get reflects well, that. Well, that, that is in a nutshell, that is the, the argument for, yeah. for incentive pay, right? You, mm-hmm. need, you want to recognize people who are um, high-achieving teachers who have... Um, uh, led their students to to great academic gains and you want to value that over I think you said checking a box so I'm assuming you're talking about like years of experience maybe the, the, yeah the degree that mm-hmm. you have um, so that in a nutshell is I mean that that is the argument for incentive pay right I mean you're interesting that you brought up the fact that you work in a charter school Elaine you actually have worked in a charter mm-hmm. school as well before so you have experience in both traditional district schools and charter schools Rebecca I think you're a lifelong traditional I am public, a public school, school <laughs> product of and does does your background of where you have taught affect your feelings about incentive pay or should it? Um, because it, it does strike me as a kind of, you put it in there with, with charter schools and, and maybe high stakes testing is kind of like a market-based reform that has become popular over mm-hmm. the last 20 years, right? So where you work, what type of school you work in, whether it be charter or public, does that affect how you look at this? I think that... Um the cultures of the charter schools that I worked in were much more competitive than my public school is. And so I think because of that, at least in my experience, like I could see more charter teachers that I taught with being in favor of a merit system. But you're also controlling a lot more variables in a charter school than Mm -hmm. you are in a public school. And that is an important distinction that can't be ignored. Like who gets in or who... And how long they stay with you and what you expect them to do. I mean, there's just some expectations that you're able to put in place in a charter school or special programming that you're able to put in place, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's it's different than being in a district setting, you know, and there are pros and cons to both. But interesting, what, competitive, we go more into that. People were more competitive at the charter yeah, school. Yeah, because you your to. metrics are always held up against somebody else's, at least in that particular charter network. I can't speak for all charter schools, but in that one, I feel like it's a hallmark of it, is that like, You know, I knew always like where I ranked in my region, where I ranked across the nation in the charter network. Like I always knew where my kids were performing relative to everyone else. And in my current school, you know, I gave the Algebra 1 EOC last year. I have some results back, but I don't I can't at a glance say like, oh, here's how my kids did compared to like Herman, Missouri high school students or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in a charter network, that data is available all the time, and it's very public. And so I think it just creates more of a culture of that competition. Yeah. I'd completely agree with that. 
I don't feel like I need to say much more. <laughs> that's, that's, your, that's your experience as well. Yeah. Does that yeah. I mean does it affect your view on? Uh, I mean, you were just explaining your feelings about yeah. uh, about in, uh, how you feel, what, what you feel you're worth. Does that affect whether you think you should get a bonus? Yeah, um, I think. I think when you enter that space, you have to be mindful of the mission and vision of that school, and that usually is going to trickle down into the different things they prioritize and how to incentivize you based on those. And so, you know, I would say I gather impression that my school, they place more evaluation upon having a master's degree than starting a new, new, a completely new subject, such as a computer science like program, which is what I've done. Um, and so, like I said, that's where the frustration comes into play because there's this element of knowing I'm doing something that, um, you know, you could argue is, just as important as what this other teacher is doing and teaching dual credit, whereas like I'm completely introducing students to completely new subjects that they've never seen before, right? And having had students who have gone to my classes now majoring in minor computer science, not to say that's I'm the reason, but I, I, I feel confident in saying that some of those students might not even know what that is if they didn't take my course, right? How do you quantify that? And I'm not saying like I need to make more than them per se. I just feel like I should get a similar incentive to those other teachers who are also bringing something new to the table. Yeah. And Rebecca? I just, it's interesting how the language changed. Is even as, as Kyle asked the question, he used marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then we heard competition. Pitching, yeah. And then you heard quantify. Mm-hmm. And the language completely changes when you take it that way. Yeah. And man, you do good work. It's not charter versus public. No. I mean, the work is the work. work the work is the work. Is I agree. the work. And, um, you know, we need to go back to, you know, it all rolled in at the same time no yeah. child left behind did mm-hmm. so is the geezer at the table i was there when that happened and here this is where we are 20 years later yeah almost 30 years later this was what the result was yeah that now you know we talk about how do we how do we incentivize what are the treats we can trickle along the, the yeah. professional educator's path rather than let's raise the base yeah make yep. it a profession yep. that we can compensate fairly to get the best people in yeah. and keep them yeah. And that's why you like. That's why you like what Denver did so well. It, I think it was, they, getting, it was getting towards that. It's getting towards that. It was idea. getting towards. I mean, yeah. instead of trickling the treats in front to follow, mm-hmm. I think I, you know, to yeah. raise that base and get who you need to attract people to come and be able to stay and and have a career over the long term is the answer, not year to year sporadic bonuses. Yeah. Now, even this conversation, now that I'm like checking myself, I feel like you. you you're there for the students, right? Like, again, find some ways that are robust and, like, consistent to measure those things. But, yeah, for everyone from the ground up, they should just be starting out a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think hanging around or being a career educator, right, like, you know, those salary scales are just not nearly as competitive as they should be. At a certain point, we're just rearranging the deck chairs. Yeah. On a sinking ship that's yeah. not attracting the best and the brightest, mm-hmm. and it's not allowing our young educators to come in and stay for a long-term career. Yeah, I we, have. We know this. Yeah. But yet we're still arguing about how many lanes and tracks in a, in a traditional salary schedule. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. All right, well, let's talk about testing. Is it time to ditch 
our current system of standardized testing? That is the provocative question asked recently by reporter Stephen Sawchuk for Ed Week as part of that magazine's 10 Big Ideas Project for 2019. I encourage you to go check that out, by the way, at edweek.org. Sawchuk says, in many ways, our 20-year experiment with annual standardized testing, which was put into overdrive with the No Child Left Behind law of 2001, has now run its course. Many teachers loathe standardized tests. They often feel the tests are used to judge their job performance unfairly and are not integrated well into their curriculum. Parents are also revolting, with thousands of them across the nation in recent years opting their kids out of taking annual tests. And research shows that testing is having diminishing academic returns after an initial boost in the years after No Child Left Behind. Academic gains, especially by populations of historically underserved students, have leveled off in recent years. So is there a point to our current regime of annual testing? And if we throw that out, what would our teachers like to see take its place? So Stephen Sawchuk, again writing in Ed Weeks, as many teachers see testing as akin to a root canal. He's, he writes, it's endured, but then recalled with relief. Do you agree? Would you rather have a root canal or do annual testing? <laughs> I feel, I feel like I've talked too much already. So I, I don't know how to answer that specifically, okay. but I was thinking about what you said about performance levels leveling off. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind is when we first started giving tests that I remember being tied with No Child Left Behind, they were all multiple choice and they were all in the paper book with the bubble sheet. Mm-hmm. And now it's computer based and we have different response types of questions. Mm-hmm. And like in math, you're getting into some serious like multi-step yeah. work. And so I don't know if it's leveling off because kids have, like, made all the gains they're going to get or because maybe the test started out too easy and now we're trying to kind of hone in on, like, where kids are really growing and learning and lacking. And there's been a a concerted effort to make the test more rigorous. Yeah, and it is. states across the country. Like, just watching the evolution of the eighth grade math test, like, it's a lot different now than it used to be. And we're asking kids to do stuff that maybe algebra one or even geometry was doing and now they're doing it or attempting it in eighth grade i should say not always successfully do you think that's a function of getting better at of the test getting better or do you think that's a function of teachers being better at knowing what an assessment needs to be that's a great question that's a great question i don't know i because i don't think you're going to ever find a, a, a good teacher that says that will doubt the importance of a quality, functional, frequent assessment. Yep, sure. I was going to say. Teachers are doing that constantly. Mm-hmm. But is so over 20 years of, of mm-hmm. standardized testing becoming what we do, um, did we get better at designing a test or did we get better at just assessing? I think, unfortunately, from my perspective, I'm originally from California, Los Angeles, uh, and I remember kind of even seeing when I was in high school how the assessments were shifting into something more rigorous. And I use assessments all the time. I use like benchmarks for my kids. And I'm always looking at the states on the coast. I'm always looking at the states on the coast because their assessments are more rigorous. They're more robust. They're assessing depth of understanding in a way that I feel like the Missouri State tests weren't for a while. And so sometimes that's a jarring experience for my kids. And I would say in the last couple years, Missouri's just starting to shift in that direction. But I don't think they gave sufficient warning mm-hmm. <laughs> as to whether or not that was like the direction they were headed towards. Mm-hmm. And so for better or for worse, I think like, and we can talk about like assessments in general, like whether or not they should so exist. I'm still mulling over that. But like in the now, I think the fact that like we move assessments in this direction 
forces teachers to step up the quality of instruction, right? And so even if that's like not the most ideal form for that process to, to happen, it, I think it's a net positive. I know my instruction this year has been way more better, way more effective because I saw the state test last year and it was night and day from what they had taken two, three years ago. And I'm like, oh my goodness, my kids are not ready for this. Um, and so I've had to, you know, completely go back to the drawing board, but I feel like my instruction has improved as a result. Are all teachers doing that? You know, hard to say, but I feel like most are recognizing that and that's important. But I think that's like more a reflection of like Missouri just kind of catching up with the times um, and seeing that other states are doing um, more rigorous, effective assessments. That sounds like a a good kind of accountability. Um, The situation you described, has that experience been um, the norm uh, under the No Child Left Behind regime uh, of feeling like you – uh, are being pushed in your instruction to make your kids um, do more rigorous things? My philosophy has always been I'm going to teach my kids so well that the assessment doesn't even matter. And so when I said, like, my kids were, like, taking it back last year, it wasn't even that I don't think they knew what was on the test. They weren't prepared to demonstrate their knowledge in the way the test was asking them to demonstrate it. Mm. Um, and so that was something where I had to kind of – tweak the way I teach things and even my assessments from like less multiple choice to more like mm-hmm. greater response and like literally I've done that with the most recent test and it's been giving kids hell it's like oh like I'm not going to give you multiple choice because you're not going to have a way out to get an answer you're going to have to like find the exact solution and bubble in the numbers for it and kids lose their minds but it's good because it's really forcing them to be confident and to you know know how to present their knowledge because I feel like for me even when like at a school that prioritizes like test scores it's like no I'm going to do a good enough job teaching them that the test doesn't matter the test is consequential um and so I just think keep saying that, Dave, that is so awesome. I wrote it down. You no, know, but just like, keep saying but that. that's that always been so my philosophy. Good. Like, I don't I'm not teaching for the test, but I know they care about that. But I believe enough in myself and the quality of instruction I'm bringing to my kids that they're going to be fine. How has you deserve a bonus? Dave is just racking up bonuses in this episode. All the time. <laughs> that was really good uh, for Rebecca and Elaine. You've been in the classrooms a little bit longer than David. I wonder how is your experience in the classroom, and Elaine, you're now out of the classroom, but you were in the classroom for a decade or more. Um, how did your experience change over the course of time as as this annual standardized testing regime continued? I mean, how did it affect your teaching and what you were teaching? So I was lucky for the first part of my career that I taught juniors who weren't tested in my state at that time, which was a glorious time. Um, and then now you have with, teachers who are non-testing teachers and teachers who are testing oh my gosh. teachers, and it, it can create uh, a really big yep. dynamic. It's a big dynamic. And, you know, I was doing my thing. Kids were learning. We were really prepping for ACT, SAT, and those were the tests we were focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to California, and I met the CST, the California State Test, for Ooh. the first time. And um, that at that time was truly just teaching kids strategies to beat a multiple choice test because instruction was not good enough to cover. Like, for example, um, one of the standards at that time was students are able to spell words correctly. There was no list of words. So they would literally be given four words Mm -hmm. and they would have to identify which one was spelled correctly. You know, and that kind of stuff, like. There's no way, there's no amount of instruction. There's a lot of reading you can do, right? Like exposing them to rich vocabulary. Like there's stuff you can do, but like no amount of instruction prepares a kid for that question. So that was a lot of hoop jumping. Those were some dark times of just like a lot of multiple choice strategies and whatnot. Then I found myself in Missouri and I became 
like an expert in teaching kids, like how do you scroll to the bottom of the page to see the whole question? Because I don't know about your kids. Mine would miss part C yep. of the math problem because they wouldn't scroll far enough. This is, now, now we're talking about computer-based testing. Yeah, computer-based yeah, testing, yeah. yep. And so um, that's the sort of stuff that gets me really frustrated because mm-hmm. it's like no amount of math instruction that I'm doing can compensate for yes. a kid who doesn't know to scroll. Yes. And it's heartbreaking when you're standing behind them and you're like, buddy, it's a distance problem and there's a little <laughs> bit more. Or like, scroll down so you can actually see the graph. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't until we did that for the first time that we were like, oh, they really, you know, because these are digital natives who should know that, air quotes. <laughs> oh, don't get me started But they don't. And like, that's what bothers me is when I'm losing time talking about like, important things yeah. to teaching kids and how to describe- drag it up. And what you're describing both in Missouri and in California sounds like the kind of prototypical test prep thing that we kind of think of when we think of like, oh, the you know the damage that No Child Left Behind has done to schools. Um, but you, So you have experienced that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say we've definitely lost time having rich discussions or digging into real tasks on how do you make this out, really outdated, not intuitive piece of technology. I don't know who designs the map, but their technology is not intuitive. And so we have to teach kids like how to graph to on a no, coordinate yeah, plane. Yeah, and, no, like, yeah. They know how to do it, but we have to teach them how to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. Just the nuts and bolts of, of the process mm-hmm. is becomes surreal and completely disconnected to yeah, yep. where do you put the comma right. or how do you spell the word yep. or do the math problem. Absolutely. And it has nothing is no longer connected to student learning. No. Um, and it, it becomes this beast that you're trying to slay and yeah. get through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're going to do it with almost two weeks of school snow days, but we're going to test at the <laughs> same time. So is well, that, and on so, top of that, yeah. I have school counseling colleagues that are not able to see kids because they have to coordinate this Thank you. test. Yeah. Thank you. And, like, I'm so thankful that in my building, like, that's not the case. The two of us are seeing caseload and interrupted, but you know, there are other counselors in the district that are spending all of their time and that just seems like a huge disservice. It, it puts kids at risk. It yeah, does. Absolutely. So if we get rid of the current testing regime, what would you want to replace? I mean, Sawchuck, going back to the original ar- article that I started this segment with, uh, Stephen Sawchuck of Edwick offers some potential ideas, um, all of them with drawbacks. You could do what the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, does test a small sample of students each year. You could test every student, but not every year, maybe every two or three years. You could rely more on essays and performance tasks, more directly related to the teacher's curriculum. Um, Rebecca, you said earlier, um, you know, a lot of teachers do ongoing assessments anyway already. Um, do any of these sound appealing? Is there something that would replace what you do now, which is the big end-of-the-year snapshot test that that is so... Um, instrumental for for schools now. I like that idea of relating it back to the curriculum that's being taught. So if we have a a strong, rigorous curriculum Mm -hmm. that we have collaboratively agreed that we're going to teach well, let's use the assessments that we're doing within that curriculum to see how we're doing. So I think you have to start there. And the problem, obviously, is how do I compare that to Mm -hmm. others? So we have to get away from why are we comparing? But I get that people who don't do what we do feel the need to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I understand that piece. But I, th- I think your theater kids need to be just as accountable as our physics kids and that there is a way to do that yeah. and to show growth over a year that takes into account things like graduation and attendance and, you know, how long they've been in our district and are they English language learners and how long have they been with our community to be able to demonstrate the learning that's happening in a schoolhouse. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I I teach two different AP courses, and they're the bane of my existence. <laughs> but um, one of the classes I teach, AP Computer Science Principles, has a performance task element to it. And looking and reading through the rubric, it's given me inspiration to incorporate more performance tasks in all of my other classes. And I find performance tasks to be really effective. I think what the state could do is, you know, per subject have a different sec- different sets of, like, performance tasks. And maybe you have to do, like, two out of five different performance tasks because I know some geometry teachers, I teach geometry, like, place different value upon certain concepts, but, like, cover your bases, make sure, like, they're demonstrating that that knowledge. But the high-stakes test environment, I've just seen in my time, just sometimes doesn't get the best out of students. But I give a student a project, and they'll knock it out of the park. That's just as valuable a skill or just as it's, – it's, if we're really about empowering all students, we have to understand that, like, a traditional test is not always going to get the best out of any given student. And so we need to evolve and adapt so that we can have – different ways for students to show that understanding. That would be, I know, a big undertaking from the state to like actually grade those and to do that. But I think if we're really trying to assess students' knowledge and understanding, we, we have to understand that it goes a lot deeper than, than uh, a traditional assessment. Well, David, you raise an interesting point. I mean, you're talking about a generation of students um, who have grown up not really knowing anything other than the system that has been uh, put in place under No Child Left Behind and What's Come After It, ESSA. Um, I just wonder, what, what do you think they have learned from from this idea of, of having these big annual state tests at the end of every year? Process of elimination. <laughs> <laughs> They're very proficient at that. <laughs> they very, in a very real sense, yes. No, that's, what, but, that's what they've learned. No, I mean, <laughs> I sometimes worry that it wires them to... I'll give you a perfect example. When I... Um, in my geometry class, I will have problems where the solution is a decimal. And students will solve it and they'll get a decimal and they'll assume it's wrong for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yes. They'll get a decimal as a solution and they'll think it's wrong. In the back of my mind, I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, decimals are a part of the real world. Like, decimals are everywhere. Why do they think it's wrong? Because they're so used to assuming that the solution needs to be nice and neat. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of the assessments they've seen in the past, their confirmation of them doing it right is not getting a decimal. It's getting a whole number because the assessment has the non-decimal solution as the correct answer. It compartmentalizes mm-hmm. exactly. what it doesn't... we've learned. So we've learned something for this result, and they don't make connections between what they know in the real world of decimals mm-hmm. to, hey, here's a decimal over here. That's a yeah. great example. No, and it doesn't teach them to embrace the idea that the real world is messy and that it's not always going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. Which or to is make like, those connections, that what I learned in my literature reading is going to have an application yeah. in my geometry class. Yeah. That's that, why I like that performance that task idea, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. is you could really integrate, like, you know, the eighth grade standards are what I know the best, so use that as the example. But you could really integrate, like, what most kids are learning in, you know, American history, eighth grade ELA. They do, like, biological sciences that year. Throw in their math. Like, you could really make a rich yeah. task that would pull at, like, have they are they able to do these things at an eighth grade level in a much more meaningful way? Yeah. And it allows for that ambi- ambiguity because you're so right. Or I would have kids that got a fraction. They're like, it's wrong. All right, well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. 
The executive committee of the American Federation of Teachers recently adopted a resolution calling on their teacher members to, quote, reevaluate their use and support of fundraisers that market the sale of junk food. The resolution singled out McDonald's McTeacher Nights. Those are fundraisers in which teachers can work behind the counter at local McDonald's to raise school funds. The AFT's resolution said such fundraisers are, quote, thinly veiled marketing tactics for fast food corporations and also undermine local fast food workers and contribute to the obesity epidemic. Whoa. (laughs) Strong words. (laughs) A mayoral task force has recommended New York City schools should be assessed in part on how well their student demographics reflect the diversity of their surrounding communities. The panel issued a report that, among other things, says all of New York City's 1,800 schools have diversity targets that match the racial and economic makeups of the neighborhoods in which they're located. But the panel stopped short of recommending the city take more drastic steps like, say, busing in order to achieve those diversity targets. And seniors at Helena High School in Helena, Montana, are urging the school to drop gender-specific commencement gowns and caps. Since 2007, the school has had a policy that girls graduating from Helena High wear white cap and gown and boys wear burgundy. But students in the class of 2019 are pushing to wear the same color to, in order as they put it, show we are one. Those are some of the education-related stories that caught our eye this week. Coming up, Kids These Days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, it might be kind of hard because you haven't seen kids a lot with all the snow days we've had in the Kansas City area, but... And don't say snow days because we know your kids are into snow days. <laughs> uh, Elaine, what are your kids into? Um, they're into that. Is a hot dog in a bun actually a sandwich question? Has somebody already talked about this? No. Okay. What? So they're like, they're very into this. Like, is a hot dog in a bun a sandwich or is it not? And they'll argue with each other. And so then I like to throw on the added layer of we all know that a tomato is a fruit. So is ketchup just a smoothie? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we've been talking what? about at lunch this week. Is this like a, oh. if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there it to hear it? It kind of feels that way, but like middle schoolers love talking about it. So if you have one in your life, I highly recommend you bring it up. Is there, a, <laughs> is there an emerging consensus about whether a hot dog they in a bun is a sandwich? They insist it is a sandwich. Okay. It's not. <laughs> that's insane. I think it is a sandwich. Right, I, now you're going to think about it. I think I am thinking about it. <laughs> Uh, Rebecca, what are your kids into? Well, you know, we've just survived Valentine's Day. So <laughs> the few days we were in school last week, it was all about Valentine's Day. And thanks to all the moms and dads that had to make those unbelievably elaborate boxes at some places. I keep it strictly off my table, but not in my class. But the the work that's going into making the best Valentine collection box is insane. And the level of Valentine's is just crazy for this old teacher. They're holographic and they're interactive yeah, and they make sound and they are impressive. I but we survived Valentine's Day. Have Valentine's, have they gone digital? Like are there digital Valentine's now? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can make sounds and they, they're animated and they're just so elaborate. 
It's a whole new thing. But people are still mm-hmm. making boxes, like the shoe box, like with the little slit in, in the top. Bet you bet they are, because Macintosh is going to do that no, for until she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> some of them, some of the pictures in some of the districts around us that required the kids to bring them in from home. There was a Patrick Mahomes box that was with the hair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is when I don't think I'm qualified yeah. to be a parent. Like, right? I don't know how to make a Patrick Mahomes yeah, Valentine's a, box. It's too much pressure. Too much pressure. Oh, that's intense. Uh, David, what are your kids into? Uh, um, you said no snow days, but that's what I was going to talk about. <laughs> uh, I think for me, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to go against your, your instruction. Um, I, I'm shocked by like how frustrating, like how challenging students have been on days back from snow days. Oh. Like, I get there's a stop and go and there's like a discontinuity, but like, let's be grateful for days off. It's going to make for some misery. But like, I feel like our students struggle to understand like, hey, and I, I even preface this with class to our point about like what's regulation. I was like, hey, we haven't had a full week and we've been a month into the school year. This is going to be a long week and we're going to be okay, but you're going to have to push through. <laughs> and for so many of them, they just don't, they're just not, like if, if you're a runner and you haven't ran for weeks and you go off for a run, you know that that's going to be an especially challenging run, but you push through because you have no choice. And I think like trying to get students on board with the fact that like school is actually a place where you're supposed to come regularly and learn <laughs> has been <laughs> has been a major challenge this semester. And and so I think I think kids just I, I can't wait for some stability. Well, I think, our, what, I think a teacher schedules. said in a previous week they treat every day back from snow day like it's the first day of school. No, that's a that's a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that was a good take on no snow days, David. Uh, Thank thanks to our teachers right. this week, Elaine Jarden, <laughs> Rebecca McIntosh, and David Persley. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, until the next snow day. Remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>